Well, good morning on this Palm Sunday. We really haven't mentioned a lot about that yet this morning, but this is the day we commemorate Jesus coming into Jerusalem and all the people crying Hosanna as we just sang, uh, waving their palm branches and, and the excitement of all of that. This morning we're going to be in Luke chapter number 23 as we go into what many people call Passion Week, Holy Week, whatever the words are you'd like to put to it. But really, it, it's going to be a little different than what... I, I, most people don't concentrate on the thieves, <laughs> on the robbers that were there uh, beside the Lord Jesus. But we're going to be reading some this morning, and we're going to find out some interesting things about this guy. But before we get to that, I want to tell you about something that happened to me many, many years ago. I think Zarebeth was about four when this happened, so we're looking at 31 years ago, a long time ago. Well, anyway, it was back. Sonny and I were going to a church called Emmanuel Baptist Church over in Moore, right there on 4th and Santa Fe is where it was. And we were there, and it was a 1,000-member, kind of 1,000-seat church with 600 people there on a Sunday morning, that kind of a church. And so they had a Sunday school teacher missing one morning. They asked me to teach the Sunday school. Well, I was young. I was a go-getter. Kelton, I had 11 pages of notes for the Sunday school class. I mean, I was ready to go. I was loaded for bear. And I get in there, and I'm going to give it all to these, these folks. And it's an adult Sunday school class, so I knew there's people there that had forgotten more about God than I probably ever know. That's the way I was feeling, so I was going to dazzle them, right? So I went in there, and we began, and there was a lot of participation. It was one of the most enjoyable moments, uh, Sunday school moments of my life, but not because they were all participating. It was because what happened about two-thirds of the way through the morning. Because this lady had come in and sat over here. She's kind of by herself. She was sitting on the front row, kind of, like I say, by herself. I didn't know that she was a visitor. Everybody else had wondered who she was, but she came in a little bit late, and we'd already started. So about two-thirds of the way through my presentation, she has a chance to ask a question. Because I'd been saying, well, does anybody have a question? Anybody like to say something? She pops up, and she says, well, just how do you get saved anyway? I've been wanting to ask somebody that. And I thought, are you a plant? Is this, is this for real? Because just ask, Cal, ask Caden. That never happens. You have to ask them. They don't ask. He, she asked me right there in front of the Sunday school class. And I said, well, you mean like how do you actually accept Jesus? Do you want to become a follower of Christ? She said, yeah, I just want to know. Can you tell me how to do that? And I thought, that's just like yelling stick him to a coon dog, y'all. You tell that to somebody who feels like they're called to ministry, they're just going to bust. And so the rest of the class suddenly disappeared, and it was just me and her. And in the next four or five minutes, I led her through the Romans road, and I told her about you know, repentance, and I told her about all the things you, you tell people when you're trying to help them to, to find the, the Savior. And then at the end, I got to the place where I said, would you like to do that? Would you like to ask Jesus into your heart? Which is, that's, I know that's not a term a lot of people like to use, but that's what I said to her. And she said, yeah, I think I would. Can we do that right now? I said, yes, we can. So right there in the front of the Sunday school class, this lady asked Jesus, she prayed to ask the Lord to be her Savior and her Lord. And I thought, this is so cool, because it never happens. Now, my question later on came, did she really get saved? You know, because that's a question you ask yourself when you have a lot of people come, or you even have just one come, you want to see, does she continue following after the Lord? Because I can't look at her face and tell whether she did or not. I can't know her heart, whether she was actually saved or not. And it's important for me at least, as a minister, to make sure that I've made it as clear as possible so that they know, and I know, that they know, that they know, that they're really saved. Because I don't want them to walk out having, you know, at, at the back of a service, somebody at the end of a service and the invitation's going on, there's this little tentative hand saying, yeah, I think I'll pray that too, and then you never see them again. 
And so I, I, I was curious about this lady. I'll tell you what happened later on here in a minute. But um, they did a survey not long ago in the United States. About 3,000 adults. It was, I think it was 2014 when they did this. And I just heard about it the other day. But they asked all these adults, like 3,000 of them, phone survey, totally cold. Nobody had a reason to lie. They just asked them, do you think you're going to go to heaven? And would you believe 94% of the people in the United States think they're going to heaven? According to this survey, 94% think they're going to go to heaven when they die. I was telling Sonia, boy, if that's the truth, if 94% of these people are going to heaven, heaven might not be nearly as good as we think it's going to be. Because some of these rascals are going to be hard to live with for eternity. But so they asked them the second question, and the second question, why do you think you're going to go to heaven? And they all, almost with the vast majority of that 94% said, because I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And I'm sure most of us would have that understanding that that's what a lot of people believe. They think, well, hey, I'm a good person. I'm going to go to heaven. It's all going to be good. But how would you know if somebody raises that tentative hand or they just think, hey, I was raised in church. I'm a good person. I give my money. I go to church once a year with my mom, whatever they call their righteousness. How can we really know if somebody is saved? Well, in the Scripture, there are two or three places where people just genuinely came to faith. And I mean, you can see it in the change in their life, in the change in how they work. You know, Zacchaeus, you remember him. He, he was one of these money-grubbing tax collectors. And at the end of the time when he spent with Jesus, he had so changed his heart, his life had changed. Jesus actually said, today, salvation has come to this house. Now, Jesus did that another time, too. And I want to talk about that other time today because it happened here in Luke chapter 23. This thief on the cross, though many said that they had come to faith, though many said in the Scripture that they were going to follow Jesus, though many said, hey, I believe on you now, Jesus also said that in the judgment time, there are going to be many who say, but we said, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do mighty works in your name? And Jesus is going to say to those, depart from me, for I never knew you. What about this thief on the cross? Perhaps the closest, most indisputable account of someone who believed and genuinely followed Christ um, you know, is this guy. And we may not, like I said, be able to tell when somebody comes to Christ or if they come to salvation, they come down, they have a smile on their face, they have tears in their eyes. We can't really tell who's really saved no matter how much they cry or smile at the altar. But Jesus himself said that this man's faith was saving faith. I want you to read with me there in Luke chapter number 23. And uh, if you want to look it up in your Bible, that's great. If, you want, if, you have, uh, uh, if you'd like to read it on the screen, they're able to have it up on the screen for us there. That is not Luke 23. What else? There we go. I was in Mark. All right. Jesus 20, or Jesus. <laughs> Luke chapter 23, and beginning in verse number 32. You read along as I read aloud there, if you don't mind. There were also two others, criminals. Some of your Bibles may say thieves. Some of them say robbers. Some of them say uh, uh, criminals like this one does, but some of them, like you have a big vocabulary, it says malefactors. That's my favorite. But they, were, they did something bad enough to be crucified along with Jesus. So here they, verse 32 again, there were all two others criminals led with him to be put to death. When they had come to the place called Calvary, there, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, 
coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription was also, it was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him saying, do you not even fear God seeing you're under the same condemnation, and, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word. And as this message is preached, Father, I pray that you would pry open those closed places in our hearts, Shine the light where it needs to be shined today. And may we leave here changed, each and every one of us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus himself said, this day, assuredly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. What did he do to get to that place? Because that's what all of us want. That's what the rich young ruler was wanted. What do I do? What good thing must I do? Well, what are you going to be able to do if you're nailed to a cross? Is there anything you can do? Well, for this man on the cross, there was nothing to be done. There was nothing for him to accomplish. There was nothing to him that he could work. He was nailed to a tree between earth and sky. There's not much you can do there except breathe your last and die. That's about all he could do. That was about it. Yet somewhere there, hanging on that cross between the earth and heaven, this man gave his heart to Jesus. And I want us to see the four things that marked him that all of us have to have gone through as well if we want to call ourselves believers, if we want to call ourselves saved and followers of Jesus Christ. Because number one, I want you to see that this man admitted that he was a guilty sinner. Now on the back of your bulletin there, there's got all four of these points if you want to keep any notes. It's there if you, it's just for your assistance there. But the first thing he did, he admitted that he was a guilty sinner. I mean, friend, he saw himself as guilty. Look at verse 39 with me again if, you don't, if you'd like to find it. Then one of the criminals who were with him blasphemed him saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him saying, do you not even fear God seeing you were under the same condemnation? And here it is. And we indeed justly for we receive the due reward of our deeds. He saw himself deserving crucifixion. He deserved to be executed according to what he'd done, according to what the law said, according to how he had heard of the people. He saw himself as being justly punished. You know what the hardest thing is in the 21st century America to convince people of? That they are guilty. It's not my fault, preacher. It's my mama's fault. She didn't potty train me right. It's not my fault, preacher. I'm of a protected class, and they're always picking on me. It's not my fault, preacher. I didn't have as much money growing up as the Joneses over there. It's not my fault, preacher. Listen, until you get to the place where you at where this criminal was to realize I am genuinely the one to blame. See, that's why the, it was not a surprise to me when I read that um, survey that that 94% of the people that believed they were going to heaven thought they were going to heaven because they were just a good person. I'm a good person. I'm going to heaven. Listen, that may be the gospel according to Hollywood. That may be the popular gospel. That may be the feel-good gospel that's in our world today. But I'm here to tell you that is not a biblical gospel. Because not everybody who thinks they're going to heaven is going to heaven. In fact, it, the cutoff to get to go to heaven is this. You have to be absolutely perfect. 
God, the holy, almighty God in heaven is a holy and righteous God and sin cannot exist in his presence. If you stand before him and you have sin in your heart, in your life, you're going to be blown away. You're going to be completely destroyed. And so he would cast you out of his presence rather than allow you to be destroyed in his presence. And so if you don't stand before him clothed in righteous perfection, guess what? You're not going to live in heaven with him forever. Well, I guess I'm pretty good. I guess I'm pretty good. Ain't going to cut it when you're standing before almighty God. You're going to have to have the righteousness of Jesus or you're not going to make it. That's the, absolute, that's the biblical gospel. You know, in the Old Testament, if you, if you read through and you see some of the, the, uh, the laws and the rules and regulations about the uh, sacrificial animals, a sacrificial lamb had to be without blemish. It couldn't have even one defect, one defect, and it was disqualified as a sacrificial animal. And yet we think, well, hey, I, you know, my good outweighs my bad. I mean, I, I went over and I hugged my mama that one last time, and, 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 and I was good to this cat one time, and, and they were picking on this bullfrog one time, and I made them stop. And God, doesn't that count for something? Well, it was nice to the bullfrog, but that, you know, you're standing before God. Can you genuinely, anybody here want to try to go with, before God right now and say, hey, I'm perfect, I'm okay, I'm ready to go? I wouldn't want to try to go up there and, and, and claim sinless perfection. I don't want to take a stab at good enough for God. But it's, it's interesting. This generation needs to be convinced of how bad they are. You know, a lot of people want to go out and preach the good news, and that's wonderful, but a generation that hears nothing but the good news before they hear the bad news, they might hook onto the good news and never realize they were guilty sinners. And if you don't realize you're a guilty sinner, you're not even ready for the good news. We've got to get people lost before we can get them saved in 21st century America. And so what the, the gospel says is if you will admit, I am guilty. That's what that thief on the cross admitted. I'm a guilty malefactor. I'm somebody who deserves this. I have fallen short. I don't measure up. Until you're at that place, you'll never be able to be saved. In fact, I, I, you get to the place where you don't even live up to your own standards, let alone the standards of Almighty God. When you start to look at yourself and realize, hey, I'm not as perfect as I thought I was. But Brother Robert, Robert, listen, I'm not so bad. You don't understand. I, was, I know there's bad people out there. See, our whole world, I say world, our Christian world, most everybody I know knows John 3.16. I know a few that don't, but if I start to say it, this, oh, yeah, I heard that on Billy Graham once. Yeah, that's right, John 3.16. What about Romans 3.23? Oh, yeah, I heard that on Billy Graham once. Well, what does it say? It says that all have sinned. That's right, all have sinned. And all them people out there have, especially him. You know, they've got that one they picked, but I'm better than him. I'm not as bad as him, so therefore, I'm okay. Listen, the gospel of I'm okay, you're okay is sending more people to hell today than ever before. Because I'm not okay. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. And so do you. The problem that we have in 21st century today is that we have forgotten that one sin disqualifies us before a holy God. In fact, there's a whole... Uh, there's a whole there's a ministry out there, I won't drop his name, but there's a whole ministry out there that all he does is he goes up and asks people, do you think you're good enough for God? And they say, well, sure. They say, well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever told a lie? I mean, just one, just even one little one. Well, yeah, I guess so. So what does that make you? A liar. That's right. And what about this? Have you ever taken anything? You mean accidentally you took a pen, you took a pencil, or maybe you just, you just stole something from somebody. You took their lawnmower. Have you ever done that? I'm not asking you to tell me what it was. Just have you ever done that? Well... Yeah, I guess so. Okay, so are you sure? Well, yeah, I took something once. All right, so what does the Bible say that you are then? A thief. So here you are, a lying thief, and you're going to stand before God and say, I'm good enough, God, even though I'm a lying thief. You're in trouble. See, most of us, if we got really down and looked at ourselves, we'd realize we've broken almost all the Ten Commandments. 
And some of us have been mad enough with somebody, we've probably broken them all. Because Jesus said, if you hate somebody in your heart enough to want to kill them, you've committed murder in your heart. If you lust up after a person, a woman or a man, of, you, know, you look at somebody and you're just, I want some time with them. You know what the Bible says? That makes you guilty of adultery with that person. But mostly the way we can look at it, I can tell you right in my own life, is coveting. Because I see somebody's got a brand new truck, especially if it's a Chevy. Where's Aaron? And I think, oh, I'd like to have that. Covetousness. Or even worse, here's the one that probably hits most of us. We put something else before God. Whether it's a person, a husband, a wife, somebody else, we put something else before God. And the Bible says if you put anything before God, you are an idolater. And here we are, lying thieves, lusting after our neighbor's Chevy and putting something before God. And yet, saying, I'm pretty good. You see... In the moment that that thief saw himself as a sinner, he realized something's got to change. He realized that he was guilty. And right in that moment, he became ready for the next step. Because once you've admitted that you're a sinner, then you're ready to turn. Then you are ready to repent. John the Baptist went into the, into the, into the world preaching a repentance. He went in preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And we need to do that same thing, but we need to be talking to people who realize that they're sinners. So this man who, who admitted that he was a sinner, now he's ready to repent. We throw that word around a lot, repentance. And we talk about how it means changing your mind or changing your direction. And all that's true. That's kind of a seventh grade level idea of what that is. It means to turn. But it really, if you dig deeply into that word, it means a, a change of perception. And, and it really could be understood this way. I perceive again. In other words, suddenly something that was obvious all along, I, re, I get it. You ever walk into a room and the, somebody's moved the furniture around? That was, that was, that was, okay, moving on. <clears throat> you walk in, something's different. And you don't get it at first, and then a little while later you think, oh, look, they moved, the, they moved, I, that's a new picture or something. That something has changed. You perceive, again, well, the person who has admitted that they're a sinner, when they thought they were good enough, but now they realize I'm not good enough for a holy God, they're perceiving again, and now they realize I've got to do something about this. And repentance doesn't just mean, well, okay, I'm going to change. It's, it's, I give that up, and I embrace this, I want to be with Jesus. That's what repentance really is, is to perceive again and to realize I'm in a, way, in a place where I've got to change. And that's what this man did. You, he repented. You say, well, you know, we just read through that. I didn't see a repentance in there. I mean, it just he, he was on Jesus' side, wasn't it? Where do you see repentance? Well, thankfully, this is not the only eyewitness account that we have of these two thieves on the cross. If we look over in Matthew, and I won't ask you to turn there, but Zerbeth will throw it up on the screen for us. Over in Matthew chapter number 27, there are just a couple of verses to show you we're in the same place. Verse 38 of this is Matthew 27. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads. Okay, this is the same scene. Skip down to verse 43. He trusted in God, this is still the people scoffing at him, let him deliver him now if he will have him, if he's, for he said, I am the Son of God. In verse 44, even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. You see, when that man was first nailed to the cross, he was reviling Jesus along with everybody else. He was picking on the Savior just like everybody else. He was somebody who was also throwing up that thing of, hey, if you really are who you say you are, do something. He was mocking the Son of God. But before it was over, he was asking God, through the Lord Jesus Christ for mercy. He perceived again this one. And what was it he had seen? What was it that he saw that he hadn't seen before? Maybe it was when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. 
Maybe it was when Jesus looked at his mother and said, Woman, look upon your son, and looked at John and said, John, behold your mother. Maybe it was something like that where they kept reviling and throwing things up in his face and Jesus just took it all. Whatever it was, that man realized somewhere between the time he was nailed to that cross and the time he breathed his last, I need Jesus. I need to, re- to turn. I- I've got to repent. He was ready to repent. Why? Because he admitted he was a guilty sinner. Now thirdly, let me move on. Thirdly, he believed in the resurrection of the dead. You know, Romans 10, 9 says, If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Okay, that's what it says. Well, this man believed in the resurrection. You say, well, you're going to have to show me that one too, because I'm just not looking. I'm just... Where were they? They were hanging on a cross. There was a man on this side, a man on that side, and Jesus in the center hanging on a cross. What comes after being nailed to a cross? Death. He is looking at a dying man and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Is there any hope looking at a man who's been nailed to a cross that he's going to rise up and be a king? There is if you believe in the resurrection. And this young man, old man, whatever he was, he looked at Jesus as he died and and there was no hope of life and yet he found hope. He believed Jesus would come into a kingdom. And in the face of that hopeless death, somehow... He found hope to say, Lord, remember me. Remember me? Now, did he understand everything about when, when, like in the Old Testament when when David said in the book of Psalms that thou shalt not allow thy Holy One to undergo corruption, talking about how Jesus would never go undergo corruption. He would be raised from the dead back in the Old Testament there in the book of Psalms. Did he understand that? Maybe not. Had he heard that Jesus had said in three days I'll rise again? Probably, probably not. But somehow, as he hung there between earth and sky, he believed in the resurrection. That's pretty bold faith when you're watching him bleed and die right beside you. Some of us have a hard time even looking back and thinking it could possibly happen. How could somebody rise from the dead? That just doesn't happen. I know people that have died. They didn't get up and walk away. You're right. It's a completely supernatural, God-intervening kind of a thing when somebody rises from the dead. And yet Jesus did after he was crucified after he died they buried him because he was genuinely dead and on the third day he rose again on the third day up from the grave he arose and somebody says well i don't know i just that whole thing is i don't know if i can trust that resurrection thing did you know that according to all the ancient history texts that we have all the textual evidence we have the anecdotal things that we have from other people there in history i'm talking about the historians of that day whether it's cicero or josephus the other ones we have more good evidence that jesus actually rose from the dead not only that he lived and died but that he actually rose from the dead than we have for the proof that Julius Caesar ever really existed. You know, we have three mentions of Julius Caesar that are actually from antiquity. Most everything we know about Julius Caesar, we get from William Shakespeare, as if that was a historical document. But we know more and we have more proof from history and from textual evidence that Jesus rose from the dead than we have of most of the ancient things that happened, that we believe, that we just accept. But if, even if I didn't have that, that's all good supporting evidence. But I'll tell you what I do have. I have the word of Almighty God that said on the third day the stone was rolled away. And they went into that tomb and guess what? Jesus wasn't there because he, He's not here. He's risen just as He said. We've got black print on white paper. And as I said last week, the word of God can never mean what it never meant, but it never stops meaning what it's always meant. And the Bible tells me and right here in this 
20, 23rd chapter of the book of Luke, as we go into the 24th verse, 24th chapter, he rose from the dead. He is risen indeed. Well, not only that, but I have the witness of the Holy Spirit. Because some people can read that and they don't believe it. They don't see it. They don't understand it. But I'm here to tell you that because God has talked me into it. That's one way to say it. By the word of his mouth that we have written down and by the presence of his Holy Spirit, I have absolute certainty that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, this man that was on the cross, this thief who went to heaven, he believed that Jesus had risen or was going to rise. And so I can believe in the resurrection. That that thief believed in the resurrection. He admitted he was a sinner. And in that point, was able to repent. He believed that God raised Jesus from the dead. And what's next? What's after that? Well, he confessed Jesus as Lord. In fact, what he did there on that cross is he's saying, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He was confessing his desire to follow the Lord Jesus. I want to go where you're going. When you come into your kingdom, can I come in? That's what he was basically saying. Can I be with you? He confessed a desire to not only be with Jesus, but to bow down to him when he used that word, kurios. Jesus as Lord. And we, he, he confessed Jesus in the, in, in, the same, uh, in the same way that we must. Here he is, hanging between heaven and earth. What can this thief possibly do? Nada. I mean, he could do zero. He could do nothing. But yet he did the ABCs of the gospel. He did the very thing we teach those kids in vacation Bible school. We're going to go through that again here in just a few weeks. In the, in the month of June, we'll be doing vacation Bible school. We'll be teaching those little children the ABCs of the gospel, hoping and praying and believing that some of them will hear and receive the Lord Jesus during that time. But he received the gift of salvation literally from the lips of the Savior himself there as they hung on those two crosses. He admitted, he believed, he confessed. And you know Romans 10.9, I quoted it before, but it says, if you will... Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, better translated, if you read it in the, in the, in the, the actual, well, I won't go with Greek. Well, let's just say better translated. It says, if you will confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Now, I mentioned earlier, Scripture can never mean what it never meant. But what did it mean when the Romans first heard that? When Paul wrote that to the Romans there in Romans 10, verse 9, what did they hear when it said, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus? We don't see it the way they did because you see for a Roman citizen, especially in the, in the city of Rome, it was required of them at certain times every year to put a little pinch of incense on an altar and say, Kaiser Curios. That means Caesar is Lord. They were required to do that. It was penalty of death if you didn't. So if you were going to follow Jesus and stop saying Kaiser Curios, no, 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 I'm going to say Christos Curios. In other words, Jesus is Lord. You're putting yourself under a death sentence. You see, when they were leaving behind Caesar as Lord and embracing Jesus as Lord, it meant a whole lot to those people in Rome, a whole lot more than it does to us today. I mean, I talk, you, see, you see it in revival services sometimes. Somebody in the back row or three, three quarters of the way back, would you like to be saved today? Just raise a hand and God will see it. And they'll get that timid little hand up there. And, and we count that. We count that. Well, let me tell you something. Sometimes that doesn't count. Because they haven't genuinely repented. They haven't come to the place where they admit their Savior and repented and then cried out for mercy to the only one who can save them. The thief on the cross, he changed lords right there on that cross that day. 
He believed and he received. And then as he spoke to Jesus, those final words that he spoke, he boldly proclaimed, I am following you. I want to be where you are. I want you, my Lord, from now on. He believed that Jesus died, was buried, rose again, confessed the Lordship of Christ, and then spoke it out in a, in a very public way. So my question today is to you is, have you done that? And I mean in such a strong way that you realize I'm changing lords. I'm not just going to raise that timid little hand and say, yeah, I want to do that heaven thing. No, I'm talking about are you willing to say, if it costs me my life, I'll follow Jesus? Because most people don't preach that way anymore. There was a revival. I'll finish with this revival many years ago. Big church, powerful evangelist came. And everybody in the town knew this evangelist. He was almost world famous at the time. And he came, and he was going to be behind the pulpit Sunday morning, Sunday night, all the way through Wednesday night. He came in early, and he trained some of the deacons and some of the others, some of the ladies to be helpers at the front because he didn't believe in that whole raise your timid little hand. If you want to get saved, you're going to come forward. You're going to counsel with somebody individually, and if you really get it, you're going to really get it. That's what, that was what he believed, okay? <clears throat> kind of an unusual evangelist. But he comes to this town, and they're ready to go, and he preaches on Sunday morning, and Brother Caden, I'm telling you, he shucked the corn. I don't know if they shucked the corn out where you are, but I'm here to tell you, he put it on the floor and everybody could tell that he had preached the gospel. At the end of that service, there was, there was half, place, half the place was wet-eyed. Several came forward praying for lost loved ones. Several more came forward to rededicate. Several more came to actually be counseled for salvation. Well, here was this one deacon. He was standing right about here and he could see up this aisle. He couldn't see much out there, but he could see up this one aisle. Long, deep church. And about third from the back, he could see a little lady sitting back there. And she had her eyes were wet, and there was one tear just trickling down. She had the hold of the back of that pew in front of her, and I mean her, her fingers were white, and he just knew she's under conviction. The choir continued to sing. They got to the second verse, and she's still sitting there under conviction. And he's thinking, maybe I need to go and talk with her, see if she'd like to come, because sometimes people need a little encouragement. So he's thinking that, about that, and, 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 and then... Somebody comes and starts to counsel with him. He looks back, and the lady has left. He thinks, well, I know she was under conviction. Maybe she'll be back tonight. So sure enough, that evening, Sunday night came. Several more churches had brought people, so the place was packed. The evangelist began to preach, and I mean, he just really, he, he gave them all he had. At the end of the service, Just As I Am begins by the, the choir, and, and, and this deacon standing right here again. Sure enough, that lady's in the exact same spot. And now she didn't have one tear. Now she's just really, it's just rolling down her face. And he just knows she is under deep conviction. And he watches her for a little bit, and the first verse is gone, the second verse is coming, and, and nobody's come to this, this particular deacon this time, so he thinks, well, I'm going to go back there. And so he walks back there to that lady. He comes right up to her pew, and he says, ma'am, I can see that God is dealing with you. I can see that you're under conviction. Wouldn't you like to be saved? Wouldn't you like to accept the Lord Jesus? And she said, oh, yes, I would. I want that so bad. That's the most important thing in my life right now. He said, well, let me, let, let's go down front, and we'll, let, me, let me show you. We can do that right here. Let's just go. She said, oh, no, no, no. I couldn't go down there. I'm just so embarrassed. All of you would be looking at me. I, I just, can't I just get saved here in my pew? And that deacon said, no. And he went down front, and he waited for the next person. Now, before you get mad at that deacon, wait for the end of the story, okay? She sat there, big tears, red face, came to the end of the invitation, she left. Well, the deacon, of course, went to tell the evangelist, went to tell the pastor, went to tell some of the others, and they were all like, you did what? He said, just a minute, he explained it to them. 
And so the next night they were praying that she would come back on Monday night. Sure enough, she was back right at the same place on Monday night. Same thing happened. The minister gave a wonderful message. Choir starts to sing. Everybody's standing. Several more are coming. There's folks being saved all over the front of the auditorium. And, and, and she's sitting back there again. Now she's not just rolling tears. She's shaking from, from emotion because she knows she needs to be saved. She's ready to give her heart to Jesus. At least she thinks she is. And so Deacon, he told everybody, don't mess with her. She's mine. So he watches her a minute, and he actually turns somebody away to a lady, and a lady comes. So he goes back to her again, third verse of Just As I Am, says, Ma'am, I can see that you're under deep conviction. I know that God's working in your heart. Would you like to be saved this evening? She said, Oh, yes, I want that more than anything. He said, Well, come on, I'll go with you. I'll take you down front, and we'll get, we'll get you some counseling. She said, No, 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 I don't want to do that. That's, just, that's asking too much. Can't I just get saved here at my pew? And he said, No. Went back down front. Well, now, of course, the evangelist by this time is staring at the situation. The pastor is noticing it. He's thinking, he's told that lady twice, no. I mean, I'm ready to whip that deacon, aren't you? Tuesday night comes, and uh, the evangelist gives his best message. I mean, he was absolutely frying chicken. <clears throat> I thought that would be more North Carolina for you. And, and, and this lady's back there, and I'm, I mean, she is now, she's, she's got her face down. Her, her shoulders are moving in her, her, her as she's sobbing almost, almost audibly. And that deacon's watching her, and he walks back there one more time, and he says to her, Ma'am, I can see that you are under deep conviction, and I know you want to be saved. She said, yes, I want to be saved. And I'm here to tell you, I don't care if I have to go down there and stand in front of everybody and shout to Jesus, I'm going to get saved tonight. I don't care if you go with me or not. And he said, well, then in that case, you can get saved back here. Now, why in the world would he talk to her like that? What was the big deal? The big deal was she still had her pride between her and God. I can't be embarrassed and follow Jesus. If Jesus wants me to follow Him, He ought to make it easy. Really? Where did Jesus following God take Him? Took Him to an old rugged cross. She couldn't even stand the embarrassment. She had the, the idol of her pride still between her and God. And somehow in his heart, that deacon, just by the moving of the Holy Spirit, had realized until she's ready to give up her pride, she's not really ready to be saved. She could go down there and mouth some words, but she'd go away lost. I mean, she could go down at the pew and mouth some words, but she'd go away lost. And somehow God said, no, it's not good enough. You, 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 you make sure she's got that idol out of her way. And by that fourth night of the revival, she was ready and she was gloriously saved. The next Sunday morning, she was baptized and telling everybody in the world, I have decided to follow Jesus. Now the question is, have you done that? I don't mean getting baptized. I mean, have you admitted that you're a sinner? I mean, have you repented of that sin and turned, perceiving again that you are needing a Savior and you turn to the only one who can be your true living Savior? Have you believed that Jesus rose up from the dead on that third day for your justification? Having paid your sin debt at the cross, and have you confessed Him as Lord of your life? That's the question this morning. If you haven't done that, I'm going to invite you to do that this morning. And this isn't going to be one of those every head bowed, every eye closed kind of things. If you want to be saved, I believe it's time to say, yes, Lord, I'm going to do it. Because I guarantee you, that'll mark your memory and you'll never look back and say, I wonder if I really got saved. 
are you ready to follow Him as really Lord? Because if He's not Lord of all, He's not really Lord at all. In just a moment, I'm going to give an invitation. If you're here and you need to be saved, He's ready to save you today. Let's pray. Thank you.